in, uh, in 2018, I got that wonderful letter from the county courthouse. It's that letter that we all hold our breath, hoping and praying will be sent to us because we've all got an abundance of time, free time, that we just don't know what to do with, right? It's that letter that informs us that we are one of the lucky few chosen to fulfill our patriotic and democratic duty in a special way. And you probably can guess I'm talking about that wonderful jury summons, right? I had the joy of finding out that I was chosen to serve on jury duty in March of 2018. And because Easter Sunday that year was on April 1st, of course, as a pastor, I had nothing to do in those couple weeks leading up to Easter when I was to serve (laughs) jury duty. I was just thrilled to put all that extra time I had to such good use. But, uh, but, but really, uh, you know, sarcasm aside, uh, jury duty is one of those things that uh, we might dread, but it's important when it comes to the continued functioning of our justice system. It, a jury summons is probably always inconvenient, but, but uh, it doesn't mean we ought to look down upon it. And, and I will say that even though it made my schedule more hectic during, uh, during that time, I was chosen to sit on the jury of a week-long civil case. And I learned quite a bit during that week. Uh, Prior to serving, my knowledge of of the justice system was disproportionately informed by TV shows, like (laughs) Judge Judy and Matlock and all those real, I'm sure they're real shows, right? But uh, so, so not only not only do I think that justice was served that week, but but I did get a nice little education in our legal system um, that if I'm lucky, I won't ever have to use again. But but whatever your own view of a courtroom is, whether that's informed by jury duty or television or or, or something else, we're going to draw on that understanding a bit today. Because the psalm which we are studying is one that is poetically set in a divine courtroom. Um, and, and, and so, you know, as you can see in the sermon notes, the psalm contains all the common aspects that you would expect to find in a trial. And, and so, so uh, as we dive into that, we, the first thing we got to do is set the stage and identify who are the major players in this trial? Who's present for this? So I would encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 82. And I would encourage you to follow along with me. Um, start in verse 1, and in, in verse 1 is who, who tells us who's present. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So, in identifying those involved in this trial, it, it's easy and it's difficult. It's easy to recognize who is the judge in charge of the proceedings. God himself is, is the one who possesses all power, all wisdom, all sovereignty. There's really no one more capable, no one more suited to serve as judge than him. And so that's quite clear in verse 1. That's the easy part. The difficult part is figuring out who exactly is on trial. We're not told specific, I mean, a name isn't given to us. Really, all that we are given, the closest we get to a description, 
is in verse 1 and again in verse 6, the description of gods, little g, gods. So when it comes to identifying the defendant, there's, uh, as I was doing different study in my preparation, that there were three understandings that seemed to be far and away the most popular, the most uh, common among Bible scholars and teachers. And so the first understanding of that little g, gods, is that what's being spoken of is, is real spiritual beings. So not God himself, big G God, but, but, but angels, demons. Right? The, the picture often connected to this psalm is that of Job chapter 1 and 2, where, where it talks about the sons of God coming to present themselves to God. And of course, we know from that story that Satan himself attends that gathering. And so then these would be the spiritual beings that were created by God and who were supposed to carry out God's will upon the earth. Now we know, however, that Satan and the other fallen angels rebelled against God. They, they failed to worship God in, in their obedience. And so in that view, the, the little g gods here would be spiritual beings who failed in their calling. They're the ones standing before uh, God on trial in Psalm 82. So that's, that's one way to, to understand that. Another understanding draws on the cultural context in which God's people found themselves in the time of Psalm 82. So the world at that time and in that place was most definitely a polytheistic world. It was a world in which many people believed there to be multiple gods. And so in a world with multiple gods, of course, there's got to be some sort of ranking, right? There's got to be a way to figure out which, which ones ruled who and which ones were subservient to who. Like, we've got to be able to figure that out if we've got all these gods. And so as a result, it was believed that the strongest gods were all part of something called the assembly of gods. And in this view, in, the way, in this way of understanding uh, the ones who are on trial— the divine council mentioned in verse 1 is thought of as that assembly, that assembly of all the little g-gods. So God then is seen invading this divine assembly, and he's holding all these other gods accountable. Now, a person doesn't have to believe that there's all those other gods in order to hold this view. The idea is just simply that the psalmist is utilizing a common belief of the day, to paint a picture of the almighty God putting these false gods in their place by judging them. So that's another understanding. The final understanding sees the little g gods as referencing humans, and specifically the leaders of God's people. And, and in case that might seem like a stretch, uh, it is a fully valid interpretation of the Hebrew word Elohim that's used here. Um, and, 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 it's, and we see that other places in Scripture. For example, in Exodus 22, God, uh, he lays out a few laws that his people are to follow. And in verses 7 through 9 of Exodus 22, it is spelled out what should be done when a person is accused of stealing, specifically. So what we read is that the parties are to be brought before God, brought before Elohim, for judgment to be made. Except that when they go before God, they weren't going before 
God's manifest presence in the tabernacle. They, they, they weren't taking the person accused of stealing into the Holy of Holies and say, you're going to come before God to be judged. That wasn't what happened. They went before a human judge who was appointed as God's representative to administer justice. So even though it was, it was said that they were brought before God, they were literally brought before people serving as God's representative. And, and you see the idea later in that chapter as well. It says, uh, it says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And the question would be, why, why talk about cursing a human ruler in the same breath as reviling God? Why, why connect those two together into a single statement? And I, and I would say it's because the human ruler is a representative of God himself. That's, that's one of the points being made there. In addition to that, Psalm 82 is, is part of book three of the Psalms. So it's divided into five books. This is part of book three. The Psalms in book three speak regularly about the failures and sins of God's people and their subsequent punishment. They're being sent into exile. Uh, the book of Jeremiah, for example, it, it's a warning given primarily to God's people. Uh, it's this warning about what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. It, 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 it contains warning after warning about, about really the injustice shown by the people. So in Jeremiah 5, God asks if the one who does justice can be found in Jerusalem. And, and the presumed answer is no. No, there can't be one found who does justice. In Jeremiah 8, God says everyone is greedy for unjust gain. In chapter 22, the temple becomes a desolation because of the violence done to the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the, those who needed justice shown to them. And so there, and there's other reasons why the Israelites were guilty of breaking God's covenant. And there's other reasons why they faced exile, but their injustice shown to the afflicted was a major reason. You see that all throughout Jeremiah. And so it, it would be no surprise in Psalm 82 to see those tasked with leading and ruling God's people, administering justice, standing before God on trial. But I would, I would say the strongest argument in support of this last understanding is it comes from Jesus himself. Um, if, if we look in John chapter 10, Jesus referred to himself as equal with God, something he was known to do. Also something that the Jewish leaders did not like when he did that. They considered it blasphemy when Jesus called himself God. They didn't see how Jesus, a man, could call himself God. Now, in response to that, Jesus quoted Psalm 82, verse 6, the other place where the little g gods are mentioned here. Jesus understood the verse to be referring to people when he quoted it. He basically said, you know, if, if those men weren't killed for being referred to as little g gods, then why are you trying to kill me when I really am God? And I claim to be so. So all that to say, Jesus sure seems to have understood Psalm 82 as referencing human defendants on trial. Um, I, you know, as for me, I would say that's plenty to convince me to interpret this psalm in, in that way. So again, if you haven't guessed by now, I, I would hold that third understanding. That's the stance that I'm going to preach from this morning, that God is the judge in Psalm 82 
but it's his people, and especially the leaders of his people, who are on trial based on how they've ruled on God's behalf. So, so I, now that's a long introduction. I know that's a long way to set the stage, but it's so important as we go through this courtroom scene this morning that, that we're clear regarding who is on trial because it, it has a massive impact on how we read the psalm. So now that we've identified the parties involved, we can see how the trial proceeds. And so as you might guess, the charge against the defendants is given first, right? We've got to know why we're here having a trial. So look with me at verse 2. This is the charge. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So really it's a two-part charge leveled against God's people. In their judgments, they're accused of ruling unjustly. Uh, they were not consistent in their implementation of justice. Uh, we can assume that they allowed things like money and power and prestige and favors to influence their judgments. But not only were they being self-serving, the other part is that they were accused of showing partiality or showing favoritism to the wicked. I mean, the very people who should have been brought to justice were not under the rule of God's leaders. You know, so, so those statements that I noted from the book of Jeremiah about justice not being carried out among God's people, I mean, that, that speaks to the validity of this accusation being made in this courtroom scene. But just like in a modern courtroom, a charge is only significant if it is compared to a law right? If there's a standard. So you can charge me of buttering my toast with too much butter, but that charge is meaningless since there's no law stating how much butter goes on a toast. I'm not aware of a law anyway, right? I mean, there's got to be a standard in order for the charge to have any kind of validity. So on the heels of the charge of injustice and favoritism in verse 2, we're given the standard in verses 3 and 4. It says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, all throughout the Bible, this is what God has called his people to do. We must give justice to and deliver the weak. Uh, in, in Micah 6.8, we're told that what God requires of us is to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with him, right? Do justice. Um, in Isaiah 58 that we read, uh, we're told that the, worship of, that the worship that God desires is loosening the chains of injustice, setting the oppressed free, sharing food with the hungry, giving shelter to the wanderer, clothing the naked, uh, Zechariah 7, God's word to his people is to administer true justice, show mercy, don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the, the poor. God's clear standard for his people was to not take advantage of those who were oppressed and afflicted, but give them justice. All throughout scripture, we see God calling his people to that. Give justice to, maintain the rights of the afflicted, through ideals, through systems, but also rescue and deliver the afflicted through action, 
Both of those things are, are needed when we think about this. We, we, we need a system which allows for justice to be given to all, especially to the afflicted. Right? We need to view the, the oppressed uh, in a way where, where we see them as, as divine image bearers who, who possess worth and, and possess dignity. And we need an understanding of God's character, which leads to compassion and mercy. And, and we'll get into that more shortly. But, but in addition to, to beliefs and systems that support justice, we also need to be actively bringing about justice for all. So, so those who are enslaved in various ways, we need to snatch them from their slavery. Those who don't have funds or ability to adequately defend themselves in court, we need to provide it for them. Those, those who are vulnerable due to ill health or job loss or, or inadequate education, we need to protect them. And, and let me pause for just a, a brief moment right here to make it clear. I'm not making a single political statement this morning. You're not going to hear me make a political statement. These aren't political things. These are biblical principles that we're talking about. Now, yes, politics have been brought into this, right? I mean, we know that clearly. But as followers of Jesus, we have to be able to elevate these principles above politics. You know, uh, carrying out these principles is not a job reserved for Democrats or Republicans. Carrying out these principles is a job reserved for sons and daughters of God. It's just what it is. And, 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 and that's solely because these principles find their origin in God himself. That's why we're called to strive for justice and administer justice. The, the reason God's people, again in verse 3 and 4, the reason that we are to give justice to the weak and fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked, is because that is what we find in God's character. That, that's the source of it all. God is showing his very nature and his character when he does those things. So Isaiah 30, verse 18, says that the Lord is a God of justice. That's how he's described. Uh, Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 61, verse 8, says that the Lord loves justice. Psalm 89 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Deuteronomy 32 says that all of God's ways are just. So, so justice for all is the standard for God's people because God himself is the standard. That's where it comes from. We are God's image bearers. And I think you can say then we are to be God's justice bearers. And so we must see in others God's image as well and carry out his justice. And that's, that's, that's what must drive us to carry out these principles and commands that he gives to us. So we've got the charge. We've got the standard. The question is, okay, how, how did God's people do, right? Well, what's the verdict in all of this? And so we see it there in verse 5, Psalm 82. It says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. 
So those who were put in positions of authority and influence among God's people, those tasked with being his representatives, proved to have neither knowledge nor understanding. And the question is, of, of what? I mean, in what area didn't they have knowledge or understanding? And I think it was the knowledge and understanding of God's character, and specifically that he is a just God. They showed they didn't, they didn't understand that. They didn't realize what that meant. They didn't understand that the God who rescued them and protected them and provided for them and, and called them to lead his people was a God who is just to all. They didn't get it. And because they didn't understand it, uh, the, the verdict is that they were, they were lost in darkness. They were lost in darkness. They shook the very foundations of the earth, which God had set up to be a place of justice. Now, they didn't bring the total collapse of God's earth, right? We don't see that, but they, but they shook it. They shook it through their injustice that they showed. So the verdict in verse 5 is, is really loud and clear. They're guilty of the charge given in verse 2. And so, when someone's guilty, what comes next? It's the sentence, right? So what's the sentence that accompanies this guilty verdict? We see that in verses, verses 6 and 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So even though they were put in positions of authority and charged with representing the Most High, they were going to die just like any other man. There, there's, there's no life in injustice. Um, might seem like it. Might, it might seem like injustice can benefit through financial gain or, or power or, or some other benefit, but in the end, it, it only leads to death. And I, I, when speaking of the Egyptian pharaoh in Ezekiel 31, someone who rose to power on the backs of numerous slaves deprived of justice, God told Pharaoh that amidst all his prosperity, he would be given over to death. Um, the psalmist notes in Psalm 49 that despite his riches, man does not endure, but perish, perishes like the beasts. So, uh, in really, in a final twist of irony, those who practice injustice will finally and ultimately stand before God, who is the supremely just judge, and they will be given what they justly deserve. And, and I think we're reminded of that again in, in verse 8, the final verse of Psalm 82. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So I think what that last verse does is it, it takes this courtroom scene where, where we see God's people, that, that generation specifically, on trial before they were eventually sent into exile. We're reminded that that's a, that's a courtroom scene that took place then, but it doesn't only take place then. Right? The defendants aren't just that generation of Israelites. The day will come when all will stand before the righteous judge. All nations are his inheritance. All nations and all peoples of those nations 
will stand before him. So this isn't just something that happened a few thousand years ago and, oh, that's nice to talk about and God's people then should have, should have handled it differently. It's, a, it's a, a warning in a way to us. It's an encouragement to us to remember that God, just as he was the God of justice then, is still the God of justice now. And just as his people then were tasked with living out his justice so are his people called to do that now as well. And I'll tell you, I, I struggled with how to end my sermon today because on the one hand, uh, that last song that we sang uh, earlier, a, a New Name in Glory, it reminds us that we have nothing to fear when we stand before God's throne. And the lyrics of that song, which are true, proclaim that in Jesus we are pardoned, and in Jesus we are given a new name, and we have our sins forgiven, and we have saving grace attached to our names, and we are made whole by the blood of Jesus. I mean, truer statements can't be made. I mean, that, that, that is the, the hope-filled, love-covered, mercy-flowing truth of the gospel, without a doubt. But then on the other hand, giving justice to and protecting the afflicted and the fatherless isn't just something good for Christians to do. It's not just an add-on for those who are extra spiritual or especially obedient. It's essential to who we are as Christians. It's essential to who we are as God's people. And in case that seems like an overstatement, I want to remind us of Jesus' words and, and really a warning from Jesus in Matthew's gospel. So this is Matthew chapter 25, and I'll start reading in verse 31. Again, this is Jesus talking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, I think we're taken to this picture of what we just read in Psalm 82. Before him will be gathered all the nations, again, just like we read in Psalm 82, and he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. And, and another way to translate the word for righteous is just. So you could hear that as the just will answer him. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now this is not Jesus saying that we must earn our way into heaven. It is not that. It is not a roadmap of things we can do in order to secure our position as a sheep at the king's right hand who will inherit the kingdom. And yet, we can't downplay the importance that justice plays in revealing that we are truly Christ followers. All right, so in other words, if, if I claim to be a Christ follower, but my life does not reflect justice for the weak and the fatherless and the afflicted and the destitute, then I have serious reason to question whether I truly am a Christ follower. I, I have serious reason to question whether Jesus truly is my Lord and Savior. I have serious reason to question whether I truly have sought and found forgiveness in Jesus. Uh, Jesus' purpose in this warning is not to get his true followers to question their salvation. That's not what Jesus is driving at here. His purpose is to get those who think they are followers, but who really aren't, to question their salvation. And, and how is that shown to them? Jesus says, well, look at what you're doing in this area of justice. You know, what, 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 you know, if Jesus is going to say to them, you're not really my followers, even though you think that you are, how is he going to prove that to them? He says, well, look at your justice. Look at your justice. It will show you. And God's people, those, those who've been saved by the blood of his son shed on the cross, are people who strive for justice for all. Because that's who God is, and that, that's what the cross is. I mean, that is, the cross is the picture of God giving justice to, to us. I mean, you want to talk about destitute and afflicted and unable to do anything for ourselves, that is us in our sinful nature. And God reached out and, and cared for us and did what was necessary to save us. So, you know, as the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into people who reflect God and reflect his glory and his character in our lives, justice to the afflicted is a central part of that. It just is. And so I think we can be challenged this morning to consider how we might be agents of God's justice in, in our own current context. And if we don't see anyone in our midst who is afflicted, then we've probably closed our eyes to the reality of things and, and just chosen not to see them. Uh, I mean, uh, it, that's the truth of the matter. I mean, uh, there are people around us who, who are afflicted, who need someone to fight for them and show them justice. Followers of Jesus will give justice to and rescue the afflicted. That, that's, it's what they do. We might do that through, through pursuing careers in law or in medicine or, or in finance or, or construction or politics or whatever it might be and use those skills in a way that helps to bring justice to the afflicted. We might do that through owning a business and hiring employees 
who, uh, who've struggled with substance abuse in the past or spent time in jail. That's a way to bring justice for all. We might do it through adopting or fostering children in our families or, or through giving support to those that do that. We might do it through taking free time that, that maybe we would otherwise apply to a hobby and instead cultivate relationships with, with seniors in nursing homes or other care facilities. You know, we might, we might care for the afflicted by, by sitting with the person in the school lunchroom who's by themselves or playing with the one at recess who is off to the side. Uh, we might do it through caring for our parents or other family members as they age, even welcoming them into our own homes. Uh, we, might, uh, we might do that through seeking to help fill the gap that's left in the lives of those who are fatherless or widows. Uh, we, might, we might work with our church or with other organizations to mobilize even more people to strive for justice through all those ways that, that I just mentioned. I, I mean, you know, my hunch is that if, if we would, if we would uh, each of us would give 10 minutes of thought to this, we could come up with all kinds of ways that we can give justice to and rescue the afflicted in our own context. The opportunities are all around us. As, as followers of a God of justice, our lives should be marked with that. Marked by giving justice to the afflicted. So I think it's so important that we examine ourselves, ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we can live out this aspect of God's character more and more. Um, and maybe show us where we're not doing it in our lives. Maybe there was an opportunity we missed this past week or month or something that the Holy Spirit can say, oh, there was a chance there, but maybe next time you could do it this way. I think this is just something that, that God will reveal to us as we, as we open ourselves to him more and more. And so in an effort to help uh, prompt that reflection, um, we're going to end just a little bit differently this morning. Megan's going to come up here and uh, sing a song called God of Justice. Um, uh, this is a song that, that, we've, uh, that we've sang in churches when we were in college and, and other churches we've been a part of, and I couldn't remember, I was trying to rack my brain if we had ever sang it here on a Sunday morning or in youth group. It's entirely possible, but the time gets farther and farther away, and so I can't remember for sure, but but either way, it's not a song that we've sung here recently, and so, uh, but it's one that I think just prompts good reflection and devotion, if we will allow it to. So what we're going to do is, um, is Megan will start singing the song by herself, and then uh, we'll invite you to join in with us toward the end. So be paying attention for that.
I'll apologize to you if you're the kind of person that it drives you nuts when a song doesn't resolve at the end with the chords. But I did it on purpose because the point's not to just end the song, right? The point is to then continue it by going out and, and carrying out that justice, asking God to show us how we can reveal his character in the, in the world in that way. So may we do that this week. May we have eyes to see that as we, as we depart from here to be, to be his agents of justice who live out his, his glory and his character um, wherever we go, whatever relationships, workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, wherever that might be. So may we do that this week. Hope you have a wonderful week. Hope you live out the justice this week. And we'll see you next Sunday.